It is my pleasure today to have as my guest Dr. James R. Rundell, Jr. Dr. Rundell is Professor of Psychiatry at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland, where he has been on the faculty for over 30 years. Other academic appointments during the past 10 years have included being Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine and Professor of Psychiatry at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Rundell is also currently president of the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry, which has recently changed its name from the Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine, and we certainly are going to talk about this momentous event. But first, a little bit more about Dr. Rundell's career and his various interests. Dr. Rundell's clinical interests include primary care mental health integration, integrated team services of active duty service members with PTSD, population health, inpatient consultation, liaison psychiatry. He's been doing research uh, in outcomes of population health with collaborative care and various delivery models. Uh, he has, uh, he's currently working in Germany in an embedded behavioral health program, providing integrated care services to active duty servicemen with PTSD and other psychiatric disorders related to military service. And we'll certainly try to talk about that too. And he's active in European CL psychiatry organizations. So welcome to, uh, to my podcast, Dr. Rundell. Dr. Moverfield, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you today. Okay. You know, I always think it's interesting to start off by trying to understand how a guest decided to become a doctor and then a psychiatrist. So what, what led you to go to medical school and start your, your wonderful career? Well, like many of us, I started off college in the general studies curriculum because I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. But during the course of um, trying to make some extra money during college, I um, worked in a hospital as we used to call them orderlies at the time way back in the day, and also um, as a pharmacy assistant. And I just was delighted by working in the hospital. I loved the, the team care, and that's where I decided to go to medical school. Did you uh, always know that you wanted to be a psychiatrist, or, or how did that decision come about? Well, I was uh, initially destined to be an internist. That's what I had planned from the very beginning. I did a gen just a general internist. And it was when we had our third-year rotation, and I did my psychiatry rotation, I met some wonderful mentors, people who ended up being mentors years later, uh, and I particularly enjoyed the consultation liaison psychiatry rotation because it was a way I could kind of keep my hands both in psychiatry and in medicine at the interface of the two. So I decided to do a psychiatry residency. Uh, could you name, do you recall the names of any of your mentors back then? Well, yes, I, um, Dr. Michael Wise, you, you know him. He published, uh, we together published the first textbook of CL psychiatry way back in the early 1990s. Right. Um, so Robert sure. Ursano was at the Uniformed Services University. I did uh, rotations there, and um, they became uh, mentors of mine and still are. Uh -huh. And so you did your residency where? Uh, where was your psychiatry residency? So I was uh, in the Health Profession Scholarship Program, so I owed time back to the uh, Department of Defense, and so I did my residency at what was then called Wilford Hall U.S. Air Force Medical Center in San Antonio. Today they've since merged with uh, the Army Medical Center in San Antonio, and they're a single-service uh, training center, but back in the day it was called Wilford Hall Medical Center. 
So you spent a couple of years in the in the United States Air Force as a psychiatrist at that point. Yes, well, actually, when the residency was over, I did a fellowship in CL psychiatry at Massachusetts General, and then I went back to the Air Force, and then um, actually decided to stay. I ended up staying for well over 20 years and retiring from the Air Force in 2005. Wow. Now, I know that early in your career, you had a large grant to study the neuropsychiatry history of HIV disease. Um, when you first became interested in HIV, was there a treatment for it yet, or were you still in? Were we still in the stage where it was this killer disease without any treatment, spread by sexual contact and blood and other body secretions? Well, I'm, I'm going to really date myself here, but this goes back to 1983. I was a PGY2 resident on doing a CL psychiatry inpatient rotation, and that just happened to be the time when. Uh, people were in the Air Force were first presenting with um, uh, full AIDS, and they were being they were all sent to this one Air Force medical center for treatment. And um, it was a new disease. It was um, I don't even think we called it HIV at the time, uh -huh. uh, and we were only seeing new cases because there there was no testing, so we were only seeing fully developed AIDS cases, and there was no treatment at the time, and so they all began to show up there. Uh, and it was quite a cultural experience because, um, uh, and you remember, you remember too, back in the day, all the stigma and, and the, the, the fears about, about what HIV was and what caused it and how it could be spread. And they literally went around asking which, which uh, of us would be willing to work on that unit and to actually help take care of those patients. And uh, I was, I was uh, interested to do so. And one thing led to another, and, and the military, a couple of years later, began to do uh, force-wide testing when an HIV test came along, and then that began to identify hundreds of soldiers, sailors, and airmen who had HIV disease, and they were brought to evaluation centers. There were three in the country at the time, Wilford Hall in San Antonio, Walter Reed in the D.C. area, and the San Diego Naval Hospital, and there was the opportunity to establish um, a big natural history study because there wouldn't be even any treatments for several more years. Now, that, that was the point where uh, HIV disease uh, was believed to be transmitted, was known to be transmitted by sexual contact, uh, homosexual and eventually heterosexual also. Is that, is that right? Well, you, you, uh, going back that far, there was still a lot of uncertainty. You know, there uh, were, you know, hemophiliacs were, were getting AIDS. And uh, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about exactly how, how it was transmitted and a lot of fears about how it was transmitted. So we had situations where, for example, the, the uh, housekeeping, only certain housekeepers would go in the rooms to clean the rooms or, or they would dump uh, trays of food at the door and not take it into the patient. Now, that was pretty short-lived, and I never saw doctors and nurses doing that, but, but certainly the, uh, there was a lot of fear among hospital staff about, about these patients and how the disease might or might not be transmitted. Now, what was the research that you did concerning HIV? Well, this was a, a natural history study, because right off the bat, uh, the military services medical departments realized there was a golden opportunity to get a universal population of people who were testing positive for HIV and do standard evaluations and follow the natural history of the disease over time. And then when treatments were finally introduced to, to study the impact of those treatments. So I was very fortunate to be able to um, uh, 
co-direct an HIV neurobehavioral research project that focused on neuropsychological testing, standard psychiatric assessment, and periodic reevaluations to follow the natural history of, of the disease over time and then to, to see what the impact of treatments was when AZT was finally introduced, I think, in 1987. Uh-huh. Well, we've certainly come a long way now seeing this, how this illness can be treated and, and people who have uh, been HIV positive can lead a full life. Does the military have a policy now on active duty military who have been HIV positive? Well, it's, it's interesting that, um, as, as, as I understand it in, in the readings that I do and in the, the, the meetings I go to, uh, what happens when someone is found to be HIV positive is that they're not able to deploy to a combat zone. Uh-huh. And so, so technically, there, you could still work in the military and, and be HIV positive and contribute and not de- deploy to an, an, uh, a combat zone or a setting where, where medical care might be remote. Uh, but, but in practical reality, it's, it's hard to get promoted and it's hard to advance in a career without having those key deployments under your belt. And increasingly, uh, the DOD leadership is, is looking toward a, um, be able to deploy or, or go kind of a, a, of a policy. And th- that hasn't happened yet, but there's a lot of talk about the possibility that if you can't deploy, why, why be in the military? So it's it's difficult for HIV positive soldiers, and sailors, and airmen because they're they're simply not able to to go on full deployments like their peers are, and that's for a number of public safety reasons and the need for blood transfusions or to give blood, and there might be remote access or medical care. There are a lot of reasons for it, but I know that it's also uh, quite controversial. Well, well, being a psychiatrist who's been in the military and remains very closely connected to the military. There are some special situations which you'd be more likely to encounter, uh, perhaps more certainly more than the average civilian psychiatrist and mental health professional. And one of those is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I imagine that you've seen many patients with this disorder. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting time uh, for uh, soldiers. I, this is actually the large majority of my practice are active duty soldiers in the Army who have PTSD, and all the disorders that, that we know are comorbid and go along with it. Um, it's an interesting time because you, if you think back 20 years, uh, September 11th was, what, um, 17 years ago now? Mm-hmm. And that's when the series of wars started with in Afghanistan, then Iraq, and then uh, they went on for a very long time. We still have deployments to those, those to, to, to Afghanistan. And, and so many of the soldiers who were among the first to go to Iraq and Afghanistan, and then they went several times, are reaching literally the ends of their careers. They're about to start retiring. And so sometimes the stresses of being about to retire can make the PTSD symptoms worse because you're contemplating loss of your structure, your social support network, and going to a, a, a new job where, where the rules aren't as clear. So we're seeing a lot of people as they approach retirement have a resurgence in their symptoms. Are there specific types or categories of trauma that military personnel experience that leads them to have PTSD? Well, sure. You know, just because you're in the military, you're not you're not immune from all the other traumatic events that one that might befall one. So people in the military have motor vehicle accidents. There is sexual trauma. 
Uh, and but but of course, combat trauma is 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 a is a very common one. But yes, we see we see post-traumatic stress disorder from uh, different types of trauma other than only combat. Is there a specific standard approach to the treatment of PTSD? In other words, does this involve talking therapy, medication, individual groups, or is there any special uh, approach that's that's used? Well, you know, ironically, just just a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago now, the latest Department of Defense and VA uh, evidence-based practice guideline on the treatment of PTSD was released. And what you said is exactly right. There, there is not any one element that that um, is is the sole source of, of treatment for uh, PTSD. It's, it almost always involves a team approach and multiple treatment modalities. Certainly, uh, trauma-focused psychotherapy is well demonstrated now as a as a uh, key element of recovery and treatment PTSD. Uh, we know a lot more about medications, which ones have the most evidence to support them, which ones are more off-label, and uh, how to use them in a in the particular setting of PTSD. Group therapy is a an important um, is an important way of, of managing uh, maintenance therapy in PTSD, and we know the importance of social support. And there's a strong emphasis these days on outcome measures and using those to define treatment and to measure its progress. I remember early on that um, we used to use group techniques for, for uh, PTSD. And then there seemed to be a realization that having other people recount their traumas in a group could sometimes um, lead to negative negative results in, in the other members of the group. Have you found something like that, or has it been an evolution of thinking in that regard? That you're, you're exactly right, and there's a big difference um, uh, between the, um, uh, the, the focus groups that would be done with, with trauma victims right after a traumatic event was over, uh, uh, incident debriefings, if you will, which would be mandatory. So that and, and yes, that was found to actually have the potential to cause harm, and it's contraindicated. But that's different from group psychotherapy, which is meant to foster social relations, build social support. Uh, in the group therapies that I've attended and helped with, they don't focus on the traumatic events; they focus on their day-to-day lives and and how to how integrate coping mechanisms. So we definitely don't do the the um, uh, incident debriefings anymore that are mandatory. But, but definitely group therapy plays an important role in the treatment of PTSD. Right. Are some people more resilient than others to overwhelming trauma? And do we know what makes one person more likely to be resilient to trauma than others? You know, uh, that's, that's been uh, the question of, of the day for decades now. And yes, some people are more resilient than others. If you take 20 people that are exposed to exactly the same traumatic event, you can have 20 different outcomes. So uh, there have been a lot, of, a lot of centers. The Center for Traumatic Stress Studies comes to mind uh, that the, that the uh, Uniform Services University uh, runs. And they, over and over again, they've identified that there are important generic, genetic factors, uh, predispositions, biological, psychological, and social predispositions, there's an important element of social support and the social context that is going on when one is exposed to trauma. 
There's the question of how many times someone's been exposed to traumatic events. You may know that what's unique in this war, uh, these series of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, is that people have been deployed multiple times. Uh, I, I have patients who've been deployed five and six times to Iraq or Afghanistan and other places as well. And we've never done that before. It's, it's, Vietnam was one and out unless you know, a small number of people volunteered to do another tour. But there's an aspect of the repetitive nature of the trauma that's important here. And then finally, uh, there, the, the importance of head trauma. Uh, traumatic brain injury makes the treatment of all psychiatric, psychiatric disorders um, uh, more, more difficult and treatment resistance emerges. So all of these factors are important in ter terms of, of determining who presents with active traumatic stress symptoms and, and who's more resilient. And I can't, uh, I, I would be remiss if I left out the important role of stigma. How does stigma figure into it? I, I, usually it's self-imposed self, it's self um, stigma. So a lot of the patients we see uh, who are nearing retirement have, have avoided behavioral health treatment because of the stigma and, and the, the, the self-image that they fear if they presented themselves behavioral, for behavioral health or psychiatric treatment. Uh, that's hopefully changing. Uh, leadership is trying to change that, but sometimes it's the, it's the, the soldier spouses who say, you either, you either have to get some help or it's, we're over. That, that's a very common dynamic in the page, some of the patients who I see. Oh, that's very interesting. All right, let's switch gears a little bit here. I know especially when, when the United States is involved in various combat situations, there'd be delicate situations where prisoners would need to be interrogated. And I imagine that that still happens. Do you know anything about the role that psychiatrists have played in guiding such interrogations? Well, you know, Mike, I have to tell you, um, full disclosure, I don't know hardly anything about that. Um, and I've, I've watched it from afar, so I've, I've read the communications, and uh, I've always been supportive of the American Psychiatric Association, American College of Physicians, AMA stances on this, as I know uh, my colleagues in psychiatry and the, and the military uh, who are active duty uh, share that belief. You know, we have a, we have a duty to do no harm, and... I know that psychiatrists have been put in, in um, ethically difficult uh, situations. So, and, and I know that uh, people who've been leaders in psychiatry in the military, as they've gone on to other, other careers, have, have, have talked about the importance of trust of healthcare profession, professionals. So I know there are a lot of strong feelings about it, and um, all the psychiatrists I know support the APA's stance on, on this. Um, and so, uh, but I just don't know more about the specifics of what might be happening right now. Okay. I mean, it's an interesting topic. Uh, when I was uh, active in the APA assembly, as you, as you allude to, the, the APA passed a resolution that psychiatrists should not be involved in torture in any way. And, and that meant uh, there was a question raised whether military psychiatrists shouldn't give advice to interrogators that might be helpful but as you, as you point out, uh, th that became a delicate issue, um, and uh, and I guess I guess it still is uh, to to a certain degree. Yeah, there's there even even um, even if medical professionals um, don't participate in the 
actual administration of whatever the procedures are for enhanced interrogation or whatever, there's still always going to be that gray zone. What's their role in examining people to, to determine their level of fatigue or giving right. medical treatment to people? So there's, there, there, there's always going to be an ethical boundary uh, in, 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 that, in that situation, almost no matter what happens. Right. But I think the principle of practicing medicine in compliance with accepted medical ethics gives providers and the profession a lot of legitimacy and, and moral authority, and the opposite happens when, when that doesn't occur. Now, I know that for many years in your career, you've worked closely with our non-psychiatric medical colleagues on what we have called and has become known as consultation liaison psychiatry. And it, it, but in your current position, I noted that it's labeled as embedded does this word have a special meaning that somehow goes beyond what we call a consultation liaison service where psychiatrists respond for consultations or even make rounds with a medical a surgical team that's, that maybe is, is like they're embedded? Uh, is there any special meaning to the, to the term, uh, the way it's used now? Yes, thank you. Um, you know, um, first of all, I want to differentiate between inpatient CL services and outpatient consultation liaison work. So the, the whole field of integrated care, integrated behavioral health and, and primary care, integrated care, collaborative care, th these are all uh, different phases of development of, of trying to totally embed uh, behavioral health services into, into primary care and specialty care services. So CL psychiatrists uh, frequently work in those outpatient integrated care settings. And when I use the term embedded or we use the term embedded in the military, what we mean is actually maybe even going a step beyond the primary care clinic and get even closer to in, in being embedded within the actual military units or the buildings where they work. So it's, it's not, you know, so we're not hanging around uh, uh, units as a drill. It's not that close, but it's certainly uh, embedded in the sense of, of working with commanders, having different behavioral health providers assigned to, to, to different units, and working as close to where, where the workplace is as possible. I see. So in other words, you would be working with non-patients, people who weren't identified as having any mental health problems, uh, but you'd be working with, uh, with y units in that situation? Is that, is that uh, correct? Yeah, I'll just, just give you an example. Sometimes um, when there's suicidal ideation, uh, with the patient's permission, we'll work with their supervisors to help uh, get friends and, and members of their units to, to watch them closely over a weekend. So, yeah, we have uh, close communications with the military unit commanders and uh, senior enlisted advisors to try to improve the treatment outcomes. Right. So this really goes uh, beyond what is traditionally known as consultation liaison, where one might make rounds on a regular basis, but with identified patients. Yeah. You know, back in the, back in the day um, when you and I trained, uh, CL psychiatry essentially meant the CL psychiatry inpatient service where you would receive a consult and then you would go answer it, and then if and then you you would follow the patient up in the hospital, but it was still the consultant's patient. Uh, fast forward 30, 30 years or so, um, uh, a large majority of CL psychiatry is done in the outpatient setting and in integrated care settings. 
the, 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 the most effective example we know of being collaborative care developed at the University of Washington and now disseminated in a number of places across the country that involves uh, being um, co-located and integrated in a, into a primary or specialty care clinic, taking care of people <coughs> collaboratively with primary care and specialty physicians, and working with other mental health professionals to deliver team care. Mm-hmm. Well, this brings us to the uh, important and prestigious position that you've recently assumed, and that is president of an organization which, when you took the position, had been known for many years as the Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine. But recently, during your presidency, has recently changed its name to the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry. So first, can you explain the meaning of psychosomatic medicine and where and why that term has been around for so long? Yeah, sure. You know, it, it has been around for a long time. It's, it goes way back to the 1930s. Um, you know, George Ingold at the University of Rochester in the, in the, uh, all the way through the 60s and 70s really helped to develop the biopsychosocial model. But even before that, uh, the, the father of psychosomatic medicine probably in the United States was Franz Alexander. Uh, at the Chicago Psychoanalytic Institute, going all the way back to the 30s and 40s, and through the 60s, he uh, uh, began to try to help make links between psychological factors and and uh, medical illness. In fact, you may remember in your training hearing about the the Holy Seven. There are seven conditions that, uh, particularly psychoanalysts of the era, thought were were uniquely related to psychological factors, including things like peptic ulcer disease, hypertension, colitis, asthma, hay fever, migraines, and coronary artery disease. These were kind of known as the, the, the holy seven. And that, that's where the, the psychosomatic principles came from and the term psychosomatic medicine derived. Now, it's different in other countries, but in the, in the United States, that's, that's where it came from. Uh, unfortunately, as the years went by, it began, it began to um, suffer some stigma. And the term psychosomatic in the lay culture and even among uh, other medical groups began to be associated with people who were just making it all up or conversion disorder or other somatoform disorders and it began to appear in movies and um, and then the stigma became a problem when when the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology uh, uh, compelled our profession to use the term psychosomatic medicine if we were going to get approval to to have a formal subspecialty. I see. So, um, so, so, do you think that the American Board will uh, will will change the name of its uh, subspecialty uh, certification to CL psychiatry? Well, they are, actually they already have. They just they just did. Oh, I just didn't realize. In the it. last few weeks, the the very last committee uh, in, endorsed it, and the American Board of Medical Specialties has formally changed the name. So about in 2015, some of our younger members in the Academy of what was in the Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine approached us and said, you know, we don't like the name. It's not it, it, it's, it's hard to recruit people into the field. There's stigma associated with it. And and um, they asked us to do something about it. And we conducted a lot of studies and and polled the membership. And it turned out the vast majority of, of, of us were calling ourselves CL psychiatrists, not psychosomatic medicine psychiatrists. Right. Uh-huh. The majority of clinical services were still called CL services, even even though in many over the years it, it had expanded heavily into the outpatient arena. 
So uh, one thing led to another, and our membership voted to change the name of the academy, and we went through the APA, APA and asked ABPN to reconsider the name, and they uh, very quickly um, this year have voted to change the name uh, to the to Consultation Liaison Psychiatry. So those of us who have a certificate in psychosomatic medicine from the American Board, are we going to get a new certificate that's going to say Consultation Liaison Psychiatry? You know, I joke with them that they're, as much as they charge for everything, they're 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 uh, uh, very careful about how they spend money. So I don't I don't know if they're going to do that. I don't think they are. Well, it's only a um, it's only a piece of paper, are, right? They, there may be the opportunity to buy one. Okay. So uh, <laughs> that that that's the most likely outcome, I believe. Okay. Well, as you know, in the field of psychiatry. We've learned that physical illness can bring about all sorts of psychological reactions and problems that, that psychiatrists and other mental health professionals can be helpful. But more recently, we're learning that psychological states and emotions can bring about physical illness, which even puts more pressure on our field to be involved in the medical care of patients as well as the training of physicians. Uh, do you think we have adequate psychiatric resources to deal with this exploding knowledge and where it's leading us and, and how we should address this problem? Oh, I, I don't think we do at all. I, um, you know, just b because of these, these increasingly solid lines of evidence that are demonstrating these links, psychiatrists w are in the ideal position, uh, being physicians and mental health professionals, to to thrive at that interface between um, medical surgical services and primary care and and mental health. And we believe in CO psychiatry that we have a, even an increased depth of, of working and training in those settings. Our problem is is workforce issues. You know, there are probably only about 2,500 CO psychiatrists in the whole country. And this is something that, that if we had 10 times that number, we still wouldn't be able to fully staff all of the integrated care services and all the different medical specialties, inpatient, outpatient, rehabilitation. So I think the workforce issues are going to be critical as these lines of evidence begin to become more evident. Well, how should that be addressed? Do you have any thoughts about how to address that incongruity? Well, you know, I, I'm going to speak just with my CL psychiatry hat on because I, I think the, the couple of things I'm going to talk about probably are also applicable to, to uh, general psychiatry and other psychiatry subspecialties. But I'm just going to, since I know the CL field and, and, and live this every day, I'm going to just kind of focus on that. Um, we, we, our workforce issues are driving a lot of our behavior right now in terms of our strategic planning. Uh, we, we need to speak, to talk to SAMHSA about workforce issues, how to facilitate fellowship training. We, we could fill many more fellowship positions than we fill but the problem is that students these days come out of training with such big student loans that they, they need to get on with, with making some money. So it's really hard to get people to sign on to fellowships. Uh, and we could do a lot better if there were either sponsored fellowships, uh, if, if somehow um, SAMHSA could be persuaded that, that the, the workforce issues need to be addressed by, by, by sponsored fellowships um, funding for, for a time. or. Even the idea has been brought up about the possibility of fast-tracking like child psychiatry does, where the, the PGY-4 year would be used concurrently to fulfill requirements of, of a fellowship program. These are all early ideas, but they're the types of out-of-the-box thinking that we may need to, 
to um, spend more time on to try to address the critical workforce issues we're going to be facing in the years ahead. Uh, those are some good ideas. Finally, uh, you've spent many years of your career living and working in Europe. How is consultation liaison psychiatry similar or different in European in European countries? Uh, it's you know it's it's very interesting. Even within Europe, the different countries have different traditions about CO psychiatry and psychosomatic medicine. Uh, I just just got back from the European Academy of Psychosomatic Medicine, which is an umbrella group of all of the different national organizations who who um, have CL CL groups. And I'll just use the example of Germany. Um, the 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 stigma that exists in the, in the United States about the term psychosomatic medicine just doesn't exist in Germany. The psychoanalytic tradition and the psychotherapeutic traditions that that um, have been associated with psychosomatic medicine over the decades really took off in Germany, and there's there's actually two different fields. There's psychosomatic medicine and there's CL psychiatry, and they work closely together, but the training tracks are different, and the uh, psychosomatic medicine includes a lot of non-psychiatrists, and it also is a heavy focus on psychotherapy. And uh, that, so the the traditions in Germany are, are, are very different, and they're a little puzzled about why in the United States the term psychosomatic, psychosomatic brings such baggage with it. In other countries in Europe, they, they do have issues with the term psychosomatic and some of the principles, and they've been calling themselves CL psychiatry organizations for, for a very long time. So it, the, the countries are different, um, but it's, it's really important and interesting to communicate with them and learn from each other. We do a lot of collaboration with the, the European countries uh, in, in our Academy of CL psychiatry. Mm -hmm. I understand recently you're interested in, in working with the mental health profession in China. Well, you, you know, it just, it just makes a lot of sense. Um, our board uh, has, has spent a lot of time in strategic planning to, to facilitate collaborations and work with other groups. Uh, the UK uh, Liaison Society is, a, is one example of a group we're starting to work with more and more. But you only have to look at, at, at um, demographic data to know that uh, we, we should really try to, to forge collaborative links with our colleagues in China. Uh, you know more than I do that CL Psychiatry is a developing institution in China, but it sure does have a lot of potential. And we would love to have the opportunity to have discussions with them, to have some mutual attendance at our annual meetings, to find out what their, their successes have been, the challenges have been. And we're certainly going to invite them to um, to bring themselves to our annual meetings so we can have some, some collaborative discussions. And thank you, by the way, for the work that, that you do trying to set some of those processes in place. Well, it should be a very exciting time. Uh, are there any goals and new horizons that you see for yourself in the future? Well, I, um, I, want, to, I want to keep working at the interface of psychiatry and medicine. Uh, I happen to love what I'm doing. Um, uh, the, the clinical work for me is the most exciting thing that I do. Um, I've become interested in, in the role of the therapeutic alliance in treating people with PTSD. The, the older I get, the more I believe that the therapeutic alliance accounts for a, a much bigger percentage of, of outcomes than we've ever given to credit for, and that's probably not used, used to you, but that's something I'm really interested in. And also, I just want to thank all of the uh, psychiatrists out there who have been in the military, who've contributed, and who are veterans themselves. 
Okay, well, thank you. I'd like to thank you so much, Dr. James Rondell Jr., for for appearing on the Psychiatry Talk podcast. I think it's it's really been very interesting to hear what you had to say, and I, I suspect it'll be enlightening to many of the people who who tune in this podcast. Well, it's been an honor and a privilege, and thank you for the opportunity. Great. Thank you again. This concludes today's podcast. Your comments are always welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's M-B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. This is Dr. Michael Blumenfield wishing you a pleasant day.